Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like minded individuals in the education space, as well as tech user labs, the brilliant new tutorials, and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. Good evening and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, It's really good to see you here. Uh, Yeah, tonight's show um, is all about what was normal when you started teaching that isn't normal now, um, which I thought was a, when, when I sort of posted this on social media a few weeks back, I really wasn't expecting the volume of responses there were um, from all across the teaching spectrum, from people who've been teaching since the 1970s all the way through to the present day, um, talking about how things had changed and what had changed in the teaching profession since they actually started. Um, so it's going to be interesting tonight because we're going to look at some of the responses to that social media post, maybe have a laugh along the way, um, and talk about some of the things that people have highlighted as, as different. Some things were actually, um, hadn't changed at all. Uh, you can imagine what those things are, but you know, there's some things that haven't changed at all, but a hell of a lot has. Obviously, technology being one of the key pillars there, um, the technolo- technological developments and evolution has been so fast-paced that even things we were using five years ago in schools have now become defunct. Um, you know, I thought just yesterday, I thought pen drives, you know, something that even maybe five years ago 
would have been sort of the be all and end all of storage. You now have cloud cloud based systems to replace that. Um, things like the way we project information is changing all the time. Um, you know, there's lots of examples where we can look at changes that have happened even even in the last few years. But imagine going back to the the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. So that's what we're going to do tonight. But before we do that, um, and before we sort of kick off the show tonight, it might be a good time for me to mention our wonderful sponsors here at Teachers Talk Radio, which is John Cat Educational, who publish professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. If you're interested in your next educational book, perhaps you want to buy one as a Christmas gift for somebody. Uh, if you do, you can get 20% off any John Cat order by using JCTTR2324 as a discount code. So you get 20% off any book in their catalogue using that. And that includes multiple book orders as well. Um, so yeah, just visit johncatbookshop.com and you can uh, explore the full range of titles there. Um, so to kick off, I thought it would be nice to talk about some of the responses um, that we've had on social media or that I had on social media. So James Theo, uh, which is at James Theo on Twitter, answered the question, what was normal when you started teaching that people would be like, what the heck today? Eating lunch. I, I found that to be quite funny, but also alarming the number of people who said eating lunch um, as something that they no longer do, that they used to do. Um, or having time to eat lunch. You know, loads of people reply with that. Um, I, I don't know if, I don't know whether that's, I don't know what, well, we'll, t we'll discuss maybe later on what the, the reasons are behind that, but I would suggest that the pressure, the, the you know, lot, the, you think about the changes that happened from the, the late 80s, 90s to present, national curriculum, Ofsted, um, you know, there's a lot, so many different changes that happened even in the 90s leading into the 2000s. And yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody, I'll have to put this out as another survey on my Twitter, but I did it as a poll about an hour ago. It's already had like 1,300 replies. What decade was the best decade to be a teacher? And I put on there the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s and the 2020s. So far, the 2000s are 30% in the lead even over the 90s. Um, and then I think last place is the 2020s, unsurprisingly. Um, but there's still some people who have said actually 2020s, I think 6 or 7%, which surprised me. I thought we wouldn't even get that far. Um, another person, Paul Smalley, said Encarta. I loved Encarta 95. You put the CD into the, into the CD-ROM and it would whir around for about five minutes and eventually it would load Encarta 95 which was like the 1995 version of Wikipedia. It was amazing. And it would take you about an hour to find a piece of information that you could now find in like a second. And that was like the pinnacle of sort of finding information was in Carter 95. So thanks for posting that, Paul Smalley. It brought back some amazing memories of being 10 years old. Um, Kathleen Walter said, being able to choose what and how to teach. Glyn Borden said the students standing up when the teacher entered the room. Well, funnily enough, um, I worked in schools sort of in the sort of early 2010s where that was the case. And I'm sure there's still schools that do that today. 
Um, but it was interesting because 38 people liked that comment by Glyn um, saying that stu- the students standing up when the teacher entered the room. I guess it was standard in the 80s, maybe, and 90s. It's certainly why I, I think going back to when I was in school, although I don't remember standing up when teachers walked in the room, I can imagine that things like that were sort of that sort of thing existed back then, you know. So, yeah, so that was an interesting one. So thanks for that, Glyn. Uh, Davo said uh, two boxes of chalk, one white and one coloured. Um, I mean, I remember that. I started teaching in 2007 and I remember boxes of chalk with, you know, the first when I started my teacher training. I, in fact, I think that year was the last time I saw a chalkboard was my training year. But in my training school, there were still chalkboards in half the classrooms. I think half had been replaced with whiteboards. And yeah, I was still using chalk in 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 2007 and also dave said having to book the tv now loads of people said about the tv booking the tv wheeling it through corridors like a massive thing which to a kid looked like you were wheeling i don't know like a fridge down the corridors and it was just hilarious i I remember like i remember um, a particular teacher i had always forgot it and then he'd get to the lesson and be like oh i forgot the tv and then he'd be gone for like 10 minutes to hunt down this tv all of us just be sat there waiting for him as he ran around the corridors like who's got the tv where is it um mike dunn said the overhead projector the good old itc again 2007 i never used an ohp uh i think they'd just gone out sort of maybe a year or two before that i don't think i ever used one uh certainly my parents did um even towards the end of their their careers um lauren uh sorry carl said singing in assembly again i think some schools still do that mark shepstone said people leaving little memo things in your pigeonhole yeah brilliant i, I was terrible though in the sense that just I, do people still use pigeonholes uh <laughs> we'll talk about that later i was terrible though when i did have a pigeonhole because i used to just visit it every term and it would literally be the worst looking one. And I would feel great guilt and shame about stuff hanging out of it. And most of it was bump from companies trying to sell me things. But yeah, overflowing. Um, uh, Clive said verbal feedbacks, given stamps. Yeah, I mean, it's even up until a few years ago, they were knocking the rounds. Uh, John Tate, which I thought was one of the best ones, writing out detention slips on tri triplicate paper and having to put one copy in each of the following pigeonholes, tutor, head of the year, main office. I still, I did that. You know, I was doing that um, up until sort of 20, maybe 2013, 14. In a school I was in, I was there for five years, and that that was their thing that they did for that time, was this triplicate paper whenever you gave a detention. And, yeah, you had to, like, you know... um, you had to do it. <laughs> it was like uh, pink. Ours were pink, yellow, and white. So the three colours, pink, yellow, white. And funnily enough, I've still got one of the copies. I was looking through my old folder or whatever. It's probably breaking about a million GDPR rules, but who cares? Um, you know, from this time, it was like 2007, eight, And I found one of them. I found one of them. I must have scrunched it up in there. It was a copy of one of these detention notices. That'll be worth something in a few years. I'm telling you. 
Um, Jeff and Margaret said roller printing maps. Again, never use those. There's a picture of them if you want to see. Um, I'll, I'll repost it or something later. So anyway, there were loads of these things. So I've got two brilliant guests here. I've got Ali and I've got Simon. So we'll just check they're here with us. Ali, can you can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you really fine. Absolutely. Excellent. Um, Ali, do you want to introduce yourself um, just briefly in terms of your... Uh, your current role, your your path in education, and what you've been up to today. Yeah, so I started as a teacher in 1981, and I think I'd had a, a kind of career of three halves. It was a job at first, and then it became um, something about professionalism for me. And then I got a bit obsessed with history teaching. That's the vocational stage, yeah. and I'm at uh, Roehampton doing teacher education now. Cool. Cool. Okay. And so, bloody hell, 1981. Um, that's a long... Yeah, I'm very old. I'm very old, but, but still alive. But that's what we needed for this. We needed someone very old. Um, and, you know, we needed someone who started. Like, I was trying to get someone who started in the 70s, but 1981, that's good enough for me. That's that's great. Um, and we've got Simon as well. Simon, do you want to introduce yourself to listeners as well? Yeah. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. Um I've been um, teaching since '97, uh, um, so I'm kind yeah. of one of the people in the staff room now who's thinking, "Oh my word!" There are colleagues who were were born <laughs> uh, when I started teaching, which is quite frightening. Um, but I've been working. I work in a. I work in prep schools, um, so I teach yeah. just sort of primary and up to the age of thirteen. And boy, lots of changes in um, twenty five years. So go on. Um, let's start. Let's start with um, with you, Simon, and I'll come back to Ali. Oh, I mean, both of you can get involved in this pretty much. But um, what what nineteen ninety seven, Simon? Yeah. Can you tell me some of the things that were normal in nineteen ninety seven? Right. That so aren't normal now. Taking into account that um, I don't think there's any such thing as a, a, a normal prep school. I think the best um, story I've got is the fact that. At a boarding school that I worked at briefly, um, boys were given a pound for every rat that they could catch. Um, and, you know, it was it was sort of standard practice for the boys to suddenly turn up at the, the headmaster's office with a couple of dead rats and they would be given a quid. There you go. That sounds that sounds very specific. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it, but... you look back at barking mad, letting people go after wild animals. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Um, Ali, anything from 1981? I, I want to sort of think about the general things that were going on in the in the 80s. Well, just a couple of things very quickly that were very different. So I did my first fifth year, which would now be year 11 parents evening. And I still remember the name of the pupil, but I won't mention her here. And I met her parents and they said, oh, she's so gobby. Just give her a, a quick clip round the ear and she'll soon shut up. Now, fortunately, I was working in a school where, although it might have been legal um, yeah. to use physical violence, it, it wasn't something that the head teacher approved of. But yeah. you can't imagine that conversation um, happening now. Um, but, you know, yeah. there were a lot. It was a double edged sword, though, because um, there was very much more of an attitude I felt then that if a child couldn't do something, that was on the child. 
Yeah. And that's very different to how a lot of young teachers that I work with now or new teachers think about it. So, you know, the pub lunches on Friday were great. I'm not good. You know, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, and the pressures were less. Um, but it was very difficult to change anything in the 80s. It seems to take three years to, yeah. to change anything. Um and as I say, that the most concerning thing that I think looking back was if a kid can't do it, that's their fault. It's not, you know, it's not something that maybe the teacher should be thinking they could fix. Yeah. I mean, do you think we've now gone to the other extreme of that, if that makes sense? Like, do you think we've gone from yeah. we've gone from one extreme to the other? Yeah, so we're in a situation now where teaching is described as a vocation. And whilst that's a wonderful thing, it, it that's a double-edged sword because there are plenty of things in teaching that children, um, you know, are coming to school hungry, um, they're not living in great accommodation. And it's outrageous that, that teachers think, um, because this is what they're being told, that they're going to be able to fix all of those um, you know, problems. So I think um, it's a question of knowing what your job is as a teacher and what it is that that you can fix and taking full responsibility for what happens in your classroom, but not feeling guilty for what happens out of it. Did you feel, I mean, my parents um, were both teachers and they started in, in 1970, 1970 odd, around that time. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I know that my dad every Friday lunch when he was a teacher and then as a head of department, mm. they used to go to, you know, they used to go for the pub lunch and stuff. Yeah. And probably have yeah, one. So. I think they had like one, maybe one drink. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think, I don't think anybody got hammered, put it that way. But, um, but certainly there was no like, oh, someone's had a drink, therefore they should be fired sort of thing. Um, You're right. It was, it was different. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm just wondering, like, why? When can you pinpoint, like, let's let's take that for example of the of the going out as a as a department, like in this on a Friday. Let's take that as an example. Mm. When when did that go? Like, when can you pinpoint the moment that that became a no go? So I'll be interested to know if it was the same for Simon. So for me, it was in the nineties. So is is entirely accepted all through the 80s. And no, I don't think I work with anyone who came, uh, was coming into school on Friday afternoon hammered. Um, but, you know, we'd gone off the premises, um, you know, during during the Friday afternoon. But by the time I was um, head of faculty in the later 90s, um, you know, the socialising was happening after school, not during the school yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, do, do you even think there's less of that now? Because <laughs> I well, don't know, like on a Friday, do you know what I mean? Do you think I think, just... I think it varies from school to school. And, you yeah. know, sometimes it can worry me in teacher education. So I, I took on an ex-army officer once and he went out for drinks with his department and then came back with a black eye in January and was telling me how he'd managed to acquire this injury. And I was thinking, well, Ooh. maybe there's, maybe there's time for us to rethink. There. So even if you're, you know, um, and certainly, you know, alcohol isn't the answer to stress, um, you know, no. um, probably carbohydrates are, uh, are <laughs> yeah. better 
answer and and, and I, I don't know if this is Simon's experience as much but oh yeah there was cake in the 80s but the amount of cake now it's just incredible you know so how everyone manages all of that health-wise I don't know <laughs> brilliant um Simon do you, do you have any recollections of 90s pub visits well I do I, I, my first ever teaching job uh, sorry, the teaching job I applied for, uh, I was invited to um, uh, 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 obviously interview um, and I was astonished that um, I was then asked out for um, a drink um, and, it, you know, sort of realised, oh, actually, this is all part of the, the interview process, seeing how you get on with the rest of the department. Oh, um, yeah. Obviously, I probably didn't impress because I didn't get the job. Um, not that I hold it against the school, but um, certainly my first my first job. Um, yeah. Friday lunchtime was yeah go out for a for a drink and like you say you didn't go and get you didn't go and get hammered you'd have the the one and and then go back to school um yeah and so when did thought, that end? yeah by the time I moved from my second school I so that was 99 I suspect yeah it had basically stopped yeah. yeah yeah so you just caught the sort of dying embers of rock and roll <laughs> yes yeah um you you were there when sort of Elton John was was coming through and sort of in the 1970s sort of thing you know the, the dying breath of the rock and roll era um yeah no that that makes sense i mean one thing i was interested in that i wanted to ask both of you as well was i remember chatting to my my old man about this and he said he said that basically when he started imagine this is the 70s now right but basically from the 70s to the 90s he was never watched in an observation by anybody he said there was he said there was one time his head teacher had come into his classroom in the first 15 to 20 years <laughs> genuinely that he, to to ask a question about something and i think certainly even in the late 90s i think i had the misfortune of having working in a lab that used to be a corridor and so lots of people sort of wandered through but no one ever sort of sat down and and watched um and then certainly in my first prep school, I must have gone about, I must have gone about seven years. This is in the early 2000s. Must have been seven years before somebody even thought to put their head through the door. Yeah, yeah. But do you, so do you think though that, do you think then that that was a bad thing or a good thing? <sighs> well, I was sort of left to get on with it. And I think it helped me develop my teaching, but it would have been nice yeah. someone to come in and sort of confirm that what I was doing was okay. Yeah. Um, I think it's gone the other way though now. I mean, I think what, I think what my dad was basically saying was he, it was like sink or so. If he'd have if he'd have done well, he'd have done well. If he hadn't been able to cope with it, that's that was it, sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it was like sink or swim, basically. No, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. But um, I had an interesting story from the eighties on that, which is that. Um, you know, I had my first head of department for my first year, very gentle character, uh, replaced by a very strong minded woman in uh, in my second year of teaching who accused me of just doing teaching just for a job. And there was some truth in that because I love playing traditional music and I was spending a lot of time doing that. And she thought I yeah. should be doing more marking. Um, but this, you know, was she'd in the worked, this was in the 80s. Yeah, in the 80s. But she'd worked in another school. So, you know, I remember wandering into her room one day and thinking, well, nobody ever really taught me how to mark books. So I'll have a look at what um, she was doing. And she was absolutely incandescent. 
And the thing is that actually you can learn such a lot from your colleagues if they will let you. And she did. She thought that I was somehow checking up on her in some way, mm. which I totally wasn't. So I think what's healthy um, is if you're in a school where um, it's accepted that the doors are open and um, that people will share their resources, you know, in a common area and therefore you can learn from what everybody else um, is doing. Um, but almost the first time that I was observed as a teacher was during as an Ofsted inspection as a head of faculty, you know, and actually it might not have done me any harm to have had some kind of helpful observation. Yeah. And what happened in the 80s was that I wanted to learn from other people. Yeah. But that wasn't that wasn't the culture. available. Yeah, it wasn't available. But the thing is, right, let me throw something in here. In the 80s and 90s, and I'm only basing this, by the way, on my parents, by the way. And that's my knowledge of this period, like ads and Twitter, right? You know, like I don't really I don't have first hand knowledge of teaching in the 80s, the 90s, yeah because I started in 2007. But one thing to sort of throw in there would be... This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as tech user labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. Is if, if they'd have introduced that sort of open door policy and, you know, more of that collaborative approach to things in the 80s and 90s and, and early 2000s, I think, may, I think maybe that would have been okay. It would have, it would have been better. It would have, it would have fit because there wasn't all that accountability around it. I mean, did you notice a big change, for example, with the national curriculum in Ofsted? Because that would have been, what, 91, 92 sort of time? Um, 
so Ali, this so, is obviously for you in particular, but what I'm, yeah. the point I'm trying to make is, is pre-1990, say, yeah. would what you're describing have worked perfectly and brilliantly, but post-2000, say, was it more problematic because you have all these systems around it? So I think Ofsted did make a big difference. But coming uh, just to mention before that, though, I was ahead of history when the national curriculum was first coming in. Yeah. And I was very worried about what kind of assessment regime was going to be introduced, but very enthused by the possibility of buying a whole uh, new set of textbooks and writing and, and rewriting and developing the curriculum. So the kind of curriculum that's gone on um, very recently in lots of history departments in schools. Well, I experienced that for the first time with, with the national curriculum. And um, I was teaching in Richmond at the time. And um, uh, we used to meet all the heads of history. We would meet and, you know, we'd talk about the curriculums that we were developing. We'd talk about which books we were going to buy. And we'd, we'd talk about how we were going to cope with what we thought might come in terms of, um, you know, a kind of uh, an approach to assessment. But thanks to pe uh, people like Chris Culpin, you know, some of the, the maddest ideas like a history sat for year nine, that kind of thing. That was we we managed to kind of um, dodge that bullet. So I don't know, yeah. again, what Simon would think. But for me, uh, you know, I thought the national curriculum was going to be a disaster and you know there was a huge amount of paperwork and a lot of time wasted but it was also a very creative time whereas what's happened with the development of Ofsted over the decades is that um, senior management in school have for uh, understandable reasons become so concerned with what they believe Ofsted wants that uh, that lesson observation, which is productive if it's about collaboration and and a complete waste of time if it's about grading people, you know, ha has been misused. So I know that there is, um, you know, a suggestion for um, that that maybe actually doing away with Ofsted as it is at the moment could happen in the next couple of years. And from what I've experienced since the 1990s, I think it's had a malign and increasingly malign influence. And it would be really interesting to see how we could get along without it. Simon, you, you've obviously, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, taught in the independent sector, but obviously you've got your own inspectorate there, which yeah. I think is called the I, is it ISI? ISI, I am in fact uh, an inspector, a team inspector for them. But what, did, so with, with the 90, like, going back to you started in 1997 so what how would you say accountability has changed in general like well since then i mean like, the independent sector effectively i always feel you're accountable i have to be careful what i say but you're accountable to the parents because yeah. if you know if the parents don't feel they're getting what they're paying for um then you know they'll take children out of schools so i think over i mean i would say yeah, over the last whatever it is two and a half decades that with in the independent sector certainly we are feeling more pressurized by parents to get results that, that and that's really where the accountability comes from i mean what i, I mean the isi model i really don't understand why that isn't what ofsted does where you're looking at mm. um how the children how you know what what how did children develop and in a way what, what we look at is 
where do the children come from? Where do they get to? And we're not really interested in necessarily how they got there, but whether mm. it's effective. Um, Ali, let me go back to you and then I'll come to you, Simon, on this as well. Um, what about differentiation? Because back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, um, I mean, I, rem- I remember, right, my dad made... Like, he was a history teacher. Um, unfortunately, I followed in his footsteps, which is a massive mistake. Um, and really, really boring. Um, but I, he used to make... He used to spend ages making these, like, cartoon sheets with a pen, right, and a pencil. And he, he had them all. And, like, he had about 100 of them. And um, I'll, when I was about 13 or 14, mm. um, I remember he came home really upset because like one of the SLT had told him they were crap to get rid of him. And, mm-hmm. he'd, and he'd spent, like, I still remember, like, him spending, like, I think I think it's weirdly when someone's hand-drawn some pictures and hand-written some stuff, it has more of an emotional, I don't know what it is, it just feels more, tan- like, it's something they've created. Mm. Um, and... You know, but but times have changed. But the reason he did these was because he like they had like little fill in the gaps on them and little characters on them and mm. whatever. Um, and the reason he did that was was I guess I don't know if it would have been turned that in the seventies and eighties, but sort of differentiation. It was for the kids who needed something different than just I don't know. Like I still remember when I started dictation, like like for a mm. whole lesson. The teacher would literally, they wouldn't even be text on the board or anywhere else. It was like, I'm going to dictate, you're going to write down what I say for the next 60 minutes. I distinctly remember loads of lessons like that when I was in school in the sort of 90s. Um, Mm. But I'm just wondering on differentiation, do you think that, again, do you think we've gone from one extreme to the other? Do you think we've gone from no differentiation to now more warped versions of what differentiation should or could be so i mean it is a very controversial topic isn't it but um at the school um, i've only ever worked in um um well what ali campbell will probably call bog standard comps but the one that was least bog standard my first school um you know um what the community changed in in the nine years that i was there imagine nine years in the same school that was quite usual in the 80s um and um so we ended up with lots more um multilingual pupils and i felt that i was letting them down and i remember going to a meeting in the head's office about this and uh, you know we had um usual kind of um, discussion about you know what school policies were going to be and what we were going to do and as everyone was filing out unbelievably the head said to me but you're a history teacher why do you care about this face palm anyway I, I left soon after that because I realized that you know I'd I'd come to a parting of the ways with some of the way you know what the school was as thinking about this and it, and it seems to me that you're right Tom that there was this expectation that a teacher might have a teaching style that might be appropriate, they thought, for their subject. And if the children weren't learning, that was on the children. But actually, increasingly, even in the 80s, I was talking to colleagues and we were saying, well, look, we've got to try something else because what we're doing here isn't working. And remember, in the 80s, that's when um, GCSEs were introduced. 
right? And so for the first time, instead of having an O-level group and a CSE group, you know, in history, I would have everybody together in the same room, right? So you end yeah. up thinking then, what can I do? What resources can I use? Okay. Um, I think then there was a lot of pressure in some schools to, uh, which is only just dying out, I think, to have three levels or, yeah. you know, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. There was, the most, that was, there was like the most could should. Like that, that was yeah. sort of like a 20, that was like a 2010 thing, wasn't it? The most could should thing. So the whole thing about <laughs> differentiation, you know, by tasks like that is it's very, very problematic. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, I've worked um, either, well, since I left that first school in London the whole of my um, time, and, you know, there are multilingual people um, moving into London all the time. And mm. if you get the support for them early doors, as we know from the outcomes for lots of multilingual pupils, they will then do really well. So I think there's a place for um, people with particular barriers to learning um, or, you know, people who just arrived in the country from U Ukraine or whatever, that you're going to do something different um, for them. Um, but it's interesting, and uh, just just to finish this off, so that other people can speak. That um, well, there's only me and Simon, Ali, so don't, don't worry. It's <laughs> yeah, not like I know, a classroom but... of thirty here. You know, it's literally just me and Simon, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, no, but I can I can talk for England. But I, I, in teacher education, we're very much uh, think that, that the emphasis on understanding what adaptive teaching might be is a good yeah. place to start, right? Yeah. So that. If, if, like me, you've worked in history teaching, or you know, before I went to teach for education, I was a history teacher for 18 years, right? That you know what the tricky stuff is. There's a lot of reading and there's a lot of writing. And if you know what's difficult, like your dad with the, um, you know, the cartoons or whatever, yeah. you, you know, which is dual coding under another name. And yeah. by the way, yeah. the Peter Moss textbooks did that. Um, then you find ways to communicate um, so that, um, you know, uh, reading very dense texts isn't the only way you can get pupils into a lesson and and that writing uh, a three page essay isn't the only way that you can assess if they understand, you know, what, what has gone on in the lesson. But this is my Ofsted point and then I'll stop because if you have senior leadership concerned for the school concerned for the young people, but also concerned about Ofsted, then teachers end up being told that they've got to teach a particular group or teach in a particular way. And that, I think, can be really damaging. You know, so um, a, a current thing would be doing retrieval at the start of the lesson. Well, the kind of retrieval that you might need to do in history might well not be the approach that you'd need in languages or design and tech or yeah. mathematics. So if you have a whole school, I understand the power of whole school policies and they can do good. But if they're telling the teachers how to teach their subject in secondary and I can only yeah. speak to secondary, then I think I think it can go very badly wrong really quickly. I mean, Simon, I'll ask you on this, but the idea that a teacher in the 80s and 90s and possibly even early 2000s, but definitely the 80s and 90s, could go to their classroom, close the door, teach in any way they wanted to teach. There were no 
in inverted commas, non-negotiables. Like, for example, a very common non-negotiable now that you might see, and I'm not saying, by the way, this is a bad thing. It's just a statement of fact that a non-negotiable you might see now is every lesson you have to have a retrieval task in the first five minutes, or you have to have a, in inverted commas, do now task, right? And then you have a retrieval task, right? And then there might be another set of things after that. But a lot of schools have have that at the very least. Um, now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it could be a bad thing if you are, if you just one day decide, you know what, I'm going to do this because it's cool, right? And I don't want to do that 15, 20 minutes or whatever it is of things that I should do at the start of every single lesson. I'm not going to do that today. I'm literally going to spend the whole lesson telling a story, right? Or I'm going to spend the whole lesson, I'm going to take the students to wherever and do this instead. That sort of thing, that sort of attitude to teaching, I don't think it exists as much anymore. I don't know, like, I'll be honest, I don't know many trainees now. I don't know the way they're thinking about things. I don't know the way they see things. Ali will, because she works in teacher education. We can ask her in a minute. But I just sort of, I their normal now might be that there are directives and things that you have to do for that to be in any way an effective lesson. And not only that, you will be directed to do those things. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but I do wonder if it could be a bad thing for some teachers. I don't know about how many, but for some teachers. Simon. Oh, gosh, you opened up a can of worms there. I mean, I... Obviously, as schools have changed, I mean, you know, independent schools, we, we, we adopt you know, the things that the state schools do. And yes, things like you will put up your learning objectives at the beginning of the lesson, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, you, you might have a retrieval task. I, I'm quite happy for that to, to be told, you know, you can do that. Uh, and that gives you the structure and the pupils used to it. But sometimes it, it is effective to, I mean, I, I was always taught when I first started teaching to go in with a bang. And, you know, if you've got a, a, a so as a scientist, that can be quite easy. You know, you have some amazing demonstration, you go and do that and get everybody's attention. Um, but if you're told, you know, you've got to put your, your learning objective up and there's this way of doing it, then that kind of, you know, can, can stymie a bit of creativity. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. When I started, there was that requirement to write your lesson objective on the board for every single lesson. Mm. And if you didn't have that, then in the old observations we used to have, where you had your one, two, three, four grades, you couldn't get above a three <laughs> if you didn't write the lesson objective on the board, right? And other such stuff, right? But actually, you know what? That didn't didn't bother me. Like, and I sort of, you know, I sort of you go along with it and i'm wondering maybe today the new version of that is you've got like do now retrieval da, 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 you know you've got like 15 minutes rather than like one minute or something like and people uh, uh, tom i'm just saying you know, one thing i like to do so on occasion is do the lesson and say right guys what was the learning objective well Turn yeah it on i mean head. i think i think I even learning objectives have been debunked now to, to yeah. a certain extent you know it's like you know, I think there's debate about what a lesson objective is and how it should be, what, what, you know, whether it needs to be shared or when it's shared or what it is. Does it, is it even necessary? It's like today we're doing, uh, you know, equations, right? Yeah. And that's it. 
that's all you need now. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. Um, Ali, what, 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 any further thoughts on anything we've been rambling on about? So um, one of the things that interests me because I work in teacher education is, um, you know, what does a teacher um, need to know? Right. And when I first started teaching, um, you know, you might want to know something about how children learn, but it was almost impossible to get access to that research either because it hadn't been done or because because it was in a book or in a paper somewhere that you couldn't get access to. And so one of the things that's the, the, the you know, the, the, the since 2010 is the double edged sword is that it's much easier to get access to all kinds of um, different kinds of research about how pupils learn and about how teachers should teach. Um, but on the other hand, if your workload is incredibly heavy and the pressures on you in school um, are really severe, you know, um, what are you going to make of that research, even if it's a lot of it is open access um, now? Um, and so, I mean, I work in teacher education because I think this kind of things matters, right, that um, that I've had to change my mind. Um, about uh, a number of approaches to teaching and learning because I've read enough research on the topic that I think, well, what I did back in the day, it just wasn't good enough and it would have let the children down and I don't want my young teachers to do those things. Yeah. So, Tom, you were talking about dictation, yeah. right? So, you know, it was accepted that you could um, dictate everything, particularly for your A-level classes yes. when, I, when I first started. And the number of people with specific um, learning difficulties who were badly let down mm. by that approach or just by copying things from the board, you know. So there are some things that you just have to let go of, right? But by the same token, and this is a bias, you know, I work for a university, um, you know, I, I want to be able to change my mind. Uh, I don't want the government to tell me or my senior management to tell me um, which research I should read and what I should believe. And what I want for my young teachers is to get them in, in interested in reading some research and then reading what some practitioners do with that research and discovering that they don't have to teach exactly the same way as they were taught. I mean, if it was effective for them, great. They should be willing to try and teach another way if that's going to you know, do a better job um, for the children. And there were things that I did for nearly 20 years as a history teacher that I now know were problematic. But I didn't understand that at the time because a lot of the empirical research into how children learn in the history classroom hadn't been done, let alone, you know, uh, an ordinary teacher being able to get access to it. But the first time that I came across this as a problem, Tom, was during the national curriculum. And this is the big downside mm. of the of the national curriculum for me, yeah. is that all these attainment targets came out. Yeah. And I went to all of this stuff and I was so I was unbelievably excited. And I said, why did nobody tell me that these levels were a thing? You know. <laughs> And then the next stage was, and where's the research that, you know, that they're based on? And pretty much there wasn't any, mm. right? 
so yeah. so we are in a different situation now where there is a lot of different kinds of research you know about how you can understand how children behave um, yeah. how they might think historically or mathematically or scientifically so so what i am looking for as as a change is for young teachers to be allowed to teach for long enough to get good at it and to have a workload that isn't so crazy that when they've got a bit of bandwidth, they can rethink some of their practice and be prepared to try something different, you know, and mm. it will depend on what kind of school they work in and what kind of phase they work in, what kind of research they, they might want to, um, you know, get involved in. But the idea that your senior leadership can tell you what the truth is or the government that can tell you what the truth is. No, yeah. I, I just don't think so. That was, is a perfect moment for me to mention our sponsors on the on the show tonight, which is John Cat. Um, so if you're interested in educational research, then do head over to johncatbookshop.com. You can get 20% off anything in there by using the code JCTTR2324. Uh, department. Oh, and that is a clang sound effect. Uh, somebody somebody has literally just run off to the John Cat bookshop and tripped over objects on the way to the My bookshop. wife is apologising for tripping over. No, don't worry, it's perfect timing. It's like John Cat, whole house collapses. Um, as, as I said, it brilliant. Um, yeah, no, anyway, though, if, if I, I know that Simon's wife's really excited about the discounts available at johncatbookshop.com, but genuinely, you can get 20% off. Uh, JCTTR2324 is the code to use. Um, don't miss out. Um, one thing I was going to ask you, um, Simon, and is your wife okay? I just want to check first. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's fine. She's fine. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask you both, and Simon, I'll start with you. Maverick and eccentric teachers, right? I have, I have like fond memories of, like, some of my teachers who were, who would get fired probably within about two weeks now. Um, and I have very fond memories of them. Um, so for example, there was one teacher who sort of, um, he, he used to sort of just like say and do stuff that was, it wasn't, it wasn't like, it was just, it was just, I don't know. It wouldn't be acceptable now, but it was hilarious looking back. And I don't know, like, I don't know whether, I'm not saying, by the way, that everyone should just turn up to work tomorrow and be utterly unprofessional and stupid. That's that's not at all what I'm saying. I don't suggest that everybody should like buy a packet of like cigarettes and start smoking them all the time and like just sit in their lesson and just say, get on with it, kids, like Grantly Budgeon in Waterloo Road. I'm not suggesting everyone should do that. But I am saying that is eccentricity and maverickness and a touch of madness and flair. And that's the thing that I think I, I do sort of wonder whether that sort of ability to have fun and have a bit of flair about you and do the unexpected and be funny and be be a bit mad. Um, and listen, you know, that's not going to be for everyone, is it? You know, I mean, there'll, there'll be people who go, you know, they'll look back and go, oh, he was mad as a hatter and I couldn't, you know, I hated it, right? But whenever, you know, I put that question out the other week and a lot of the comments, you know, if you were to put a, a poll out now, who's your, who's your, who's your remember as a teacher at school? 
there be there be an awful lot of comments about positive, positive but mad. I, I put this question out once actually myself. Po- you know, positive but mad. You know, Mister or Missus So and So used to do this stupid thing, and you know, I mean, my dad used to do handstands down the corridor in between lessons and stuff. Um, and some of the kids he taught still remember that. But now it'd be like, you're going on a plan, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, I think from my experience, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it's an independent school thing, but there are, I think there are still those, those. Yeah, but it might be slightly, there. it might be a bit different in the independent sector. Yeah. I, don't I mean, know, I, I, like worked, I worked with one bloke who, if, if he felt that children weren't pulling their weights, he would say things, what, are you French? You know, are you giving up? surrendering um which i don't think well, that's just a bit to do now. that's not funny though is it that's not well i mean he, he thought it was kind of humorous and that was you know he's getting a laugh yeah. out of it um then again there was also there's a a principal of a school who used to be in the um he'd, he'd been a guardsman and he used to be seen parading in his tunic and bearskin now and again yeah you know, so we do have to, you know there are those weirdos i say weirdos <laughs> <laughs> mavericks i mean you know um yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not saying we want, like, just complete sort of madness going on, like, all over the shop. But, you know, Ali or, or, or is that sort of eccentric, mad-hatter teacher who is often fondly remembered. Um, are they now a thing of the past? I'm not sure they're totally a thing of the past. No. But the idea that you might have something that you do that is incredibly engaging and you are prevented from doing it would be such a shame wouldn't it and and this is a less controversial example but one that's very dear to my heart so in my in my uh second score i was head of history there was an english teacher who was just brilliant reading out loud so she's an english teacher and she's meant to be doing all kinds of other stuff yeah but she was a legend in the school and the pupils they adored her lessons and they appeared to learn from her despite the fact that she seemed to spend (laughs) as i say an inordinate amount of time in her lessons reading out loud but she made this into um a performance she took the pupils on a journey with her and part of what i think you're saying is that um for some teachers um, being a teacher becomes a part of their persona and their persona becomes a, a part of their teaching. And then one of the things that's great for the kids when they come to school is that they're not meeting a whole load of robots. They're engaging with a whole load of very different human beings who are all giving them ideas about, you know, uh, why, uh, you know, how to be an adult and, and, and you know, when they're, when they're growing up, you know, because teachers do have an influence, don't they, on, on, on young people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's probably a dusty end where it, it where it's dodgy and, you know, you, you, you'd want to rein people in. But that but young people really respond, don't they? If you're present in the room and you're nuts, uh, if you're a secondary teacher, about the topic that you're teaching. And if you're an English teacher about the book that you're reading and you want to take absolutely every living soul in the room with you. And if it involves a mad performance, you're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of in the history domain. I guess that would be somebody who just used to 
tell a lot of stories in lessons um, yeah. Yeah. from the past. And the yeah. stories might meander and they might be utterly hilarious, but many people would look at that now and go, well, they're not learning anything. They, they might be laughing along to the story and they might be, you know, enjoying it and they might be engaging with it, but they're not really learning anything. And they're certainly not learning anything at the pace that we need them to learn things. Now, again, I don't really know the correct answer, but I do think we're missing out on moments, let's say, experiences, um, perhaps, and, and there's one other thing. See, see, I want people to stay in teaching so that they get good enough, you know, so that they can really enjoy doing the job and they're doing a good job for the children and therefore it's got to be enjoyable. So, you know, and uh, I, I know it's old fashioned, to, you know, these days, but I used to actually really enjoy planning lessons and deciding what I was going to do, <laughs> you know, and learning new things to do. Um, in lessons, it made the job enjoyable for and me. Also, like, and so I stayed in teaching. Yeah, I mean, there's also that idea of like, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just do something that I think is cool, and if it doesn't work, it's not the end of the world. Like, it doesn't matter if I do yeah. something and I waste this whole lesson and it's a complete joke. It's not the end of the world. Like, mm. it's not the end of the world. If I genuinely think that's good, that's gonna be cool, and it could be cool. Like you don't know until you do it often enough. So at the end of the day, like, you know, give it a go, see what happens. Um, yeah, Simon, do you have well, any I was, thoughts? I, I was just thinking about, talking about if you want to do, you know, do things that you're passionate about, you're excited about. I think, the, you know, if children can see that you are enthusiastic um, and go off piste occasionally and sort of take them down a route that, that isn't necessarily you know, prescribed by national curriculum or, or yeah. what we have, the common entrance syllabus, you know, all of a sudden you, you, you could be talking about forces and, and you, you suddenly pull out of the bag to, oh, do you know, I remember that I used to make aeroplane wings out of a piece of paper and you'd suddenly have kids running up and down corridors and, and they, they and it might not be what you initially planned, but you just suddenly have this great idea and it works. And then the kids just see, you know, of flashbulb go on and see the excitement in your eyes um you know that is that that i think there's less scope for that now yeah. um than there used to be i mean also the other thing i mean one thing that i think did change over and i'm glad it's sort of to my mind in science has come full circle we used to do practical work all the time when i first yeah. started and then it sort of disappeared for a period of time, I say six or seven years, and people sort of say, "Well, you've got your interactive whiteboard, and you can download this software and do this experiment yeah. without setting it up." And you know, everyone was sort of taken up with this this wonderful idea, but then it took away the magic and the mystery of, of doing practical science, and the idea that sometimes an experiment didn't work. And but now, I think we've gone back. Well, I hope certainly where I've been working, there's lots more practical work. And not more, not more chances to, to for pupils to see the excitement of of experiments. Um, yeah, it's interesting so that I mean, people it really has switched around. Well, people did mention in the comments on the original question that I posed a couple of weeks ago: school trips, you know, yeah. and like being able to go. I'm off to wherever, and obviously, there's a lot more. I mean, you think of the red tape now that there is compared to even when mm. I started. It's my, and it's not even just the red tape 
it's the worry of what's actually going to go on while you're on mm. the trip. Back in the day, if kids were like messing about on a trip or whatever, did something stupid or, you know, not not that stupid, but you know what I mean, like stayed up all night or the type of stuff teenagers do, right? Um, then maybe there'd be less scope that the teacher would be in... They, they, you might be more worried now about like the, your career ending, depending on things that happen outside of your control on a trip. Whereas maybe in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it was a bit more, I don't know, like a bit more, oh, maybe one of you can help me out. I know what I'm trying to say. So Yeah, I know what you mean. So I did have the opposite uh, situation. There's to you that which you might expect that I was uh, leading a history trip by coach in the yeah. 80s. Yeah. And, and we we arrived at the place and 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 counted them all off and realised that we yeah. got one, one more than we should have had. No. So a kid had decided they'd looked at their timetable for the for the day and decided yeah. even though they weren't meant to be on the trip that the history trip was going to be more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it's a, it's a different world, isn't it? Which but I mean now... the number of number of history teachers that still run trips i think they are incredible yeah. because i think the pressures are huge Definitely. but but the benefits you know they can really change your mind about I mean, who you one. are and what you want to do with your life you know some of these yeah, things 100%. you know some of the trips that the history people do so yeah yeah i think the last one i ran was like 2015 and it nearly killed me like it, mm. nearly, like it nearly killed as lead as head of history. So I was the leader of the trip, um, mm. and I was ill, and it was like, oh, it nearly, it nearly killed me. Like it was, uh, but at least now I think things are positive in the sense that if you are willing to do trips, more schools do tend to say, right, you can have a bit of time in lieu for the trip, mm. or we'll facilitate this, that, and the other to help you run it. Whereas mm. maybe twenty odd years ago, it was like, oh, I want to do a trip, right? Crack on then sort of thing whereas mm. i do think now there is a bit more like support for people who want to do something like that i support in terms of maybe time in loot not necessarily support in terms of finance or support around the trip but yeah i don't mm. know it's, it's an interesting one like has you know that's a wider question of like has health and safety gone mad or i, I don't know but they're bigger questions but certainly i think it's an it, the, the, like two or three of the comments were school trips like have gone or there's not as many or it's not as it's not as fun i'll give you an update on this um on this poll i'm running uh, mm -hmm. just to just to everyone everyone who's sort of in the show live um so to speak um if you're interested i'm running a poll currently and the poll asks those who have taught in all or most of these decades which was the best to be a teacher in um so far We've got the 1990s at 29%. We've got the 2000s at 45%. Oof. We've got the 2010s at 18%. And we've got the 2020s at 8%. Um, we I'm... need to worry about this, don't we? You know, because we need people to stay in teaching. And, uh, you know, you need to right, enjoy it. Funny. Like, here's my point, mm. right? If changes were made now, that... Mm. That survey I just run would reverse. Mm. I, I, honestly, because teaching itself is great. No, mm. Teaching itself has always been fun and cool and great and, yeah. and all these other things, right? It's never changed. It's always been great. 
the thing that they that could happen is you could easily repair that pole by in the next 12 months by making some radical changes you you could there's ways to do it but what i find interesting in there is like but this might be because most of the people answering the poll weren't teaching in the 90s so they've picked the early 2000s but it is interesting how the 90s comes out 29 <laughs> yeah designing polls is always tricky isn't it yeah you have to be careful about the results yeah <laughs> um yeah but anyway what i wanted to ask you both is what is the one thing you miss the most from when you started teaching what's the one maybe not miss the most but have nostalgia for let's say from the time when you were starting out oh colored chalk i'm serious <laughs> colored chalk i used to love drawing diagrams on boards yeah and, I, and I, it's just and a white whiteboard and the pens <laughs> doesn't have the same thing as as chalk <laughs> honestly you know, the shading it's just, it's an, an, an a rollerboard a rollerboard so you, you you do your picture and then you you pull the board you write please leave pull it down for somebody else to use and you know i, I that might sound eccentric but that that's what i do miss I love chalk. So the thing I thing I miss are the books, and I'm just obsessed with my Ooh. phone and well, tech yeah. and all the rest of it. But I remember my first year of teaching, I was told that I got a term to teach the Saxons. And long story short, I never studied. You know, not at uni, uni, not when I have been at school for whatever reason. Yeah. And they and they said, oh, you know, it's really easy, and just give them a test at the end. You know, and I was thinking, but I know nothing. So I go into the school library. Yeah. And, you know, I find these library books, um, yeah. you know, about Sutton Who. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard vaguely these phrases about the Dark Ages. That they were these incredible objects. And then I start looking at some local maps and, and discovering, well, there must have been quite a lot of Saxons around here. I mean, we can talk about whether we should be using the term Saxons on another show. But <laughs> the whole thing is that I got, I got really interested through these books in this period of time and at the moment partly because of funding issue and partly because of you know exam pressures and all the rest of it there aren't as many books you know it's possible for there to be great textbooks you know some of my students have written some textbooks but actually a great book you know you know so i, I what i want to get back to when i retire is just reading more books and one of the things that I loved at school when I was teaching in the beginning is that there were some great books that you could use. Yeah. And, you know, and I think textbooks are underrated. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'd quite like it if we got a chance for, um, you know, that that old fashioned technology to have another moment in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that like. I was so I did a little tiny contract. Um, this was this was just before COVID in a school um, mm. in Blackpool, and um, it was just to help them, help out. Basically, they needed a teacher to do this. But anyway, before I left the school, um, mm. they were like clearing out stuff, and honestly, the books in the cupboard were at, mm. were phenomenal. Like. They had not been touched for 30 years, 40 years. Yeah. They, yeah. they had so much dust on, but they were so good. Like, they were really good. You know, like then and now books. 
um, mm. local history books that mm. are probably out of print now. Um, that where the way they were done was just sort of really, really good, you know, really, really strong. Um, but you know, I suppose it'll be interesting, won't it? And this is gonna was gonna be my next question to you was in 20 years time or 30 years time what will teachers in 20 to 30 years time obviously there'll be none left so this is an irrelevant question but (laughs) what in 20 it's completely irrelevant but in 20 to 30 years time what would a teacher be nostalgic about that's there now Oh, can you tell? I mean, the pace of change with yeah. technology, I don't think you can tell. Do you know what I think it would be? if people would miss OneNote or PowerPoint. No, do you know what I think it would be? They won't. <laughs> I don't think they will. But the big screens with the images. But the thing that's always absolutely golden, um, and it doesn't matter what age group of people you're teaching, I think, is just that interaction with the group. Hmm. So I'm very interested that we're still doing things so i don't know how many pupils you would normally have in in the classes that you teach simon i'm not going to say because some people would be incredibly jealous (laughs) but (laughs) But we do group we still have groups (laughs) yes yes and so this idea um that has lasted throughout my entire teaching career that actually having 25 people in the room you know um, if you know what you're doing, you can have that 25 people having a full-on heavy-duty discussion yeah. Um, yeah. about something, whether it's a science experiment or whether it's, you know, you know, going back to history again, you know, talking about the consequences of something that happened and, you know, talking about counterfactuals and all that kind of thing. Mm. And so, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that all the pressures that are on teachers at the moment, I don't think that stops some teachers even today having classrooms where amazing discussions you know because teenagers right. are never bored you know that that can still yeah happen. Of and so we need to make sure that the the, the 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 next lot of tech that comes in doesn't stop getting the kids together in a group because that's also where some of the you know really interesting um, educational opportunities lie i think I just wonder as well whether people will remember handwriting. <laughs> well, I, well, I was going to say, though, to getting I, our applicants to handwrite their written task. I, <laughs> this wasn't my decision, to be fair. Um, yeah, I don't know. Simon, I mean, handwriting do is your my kids thing. handwrite? I, love it's just, I would miss it if it would disappeared. <laughs> do your kids yeah. still do it though, Simon? Do they still do we, handwriting? We, we have a we have a mixture. Um, so we, we 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 do we do type, but you know touch ty- touch typing needs to be taught. And I've pointed this out on Twitter to many people. Yeah. Touch typing's not if it's not Definitely. taught properly, there's no point in doing it. But um, yeah, we still use exercise books. I mean, also, it, but yeah. you you Simon, now what percentage of what you do is handwritten? Like you. <sighs> well, when I'm when I'm taking notes personally, I I handwrite them. No, if, I don't. If I'm so to, do I. To a, um, I mean, I could, do you, I could, do you could, Ali? Do you handwrite notes? Yes. I, now, when I was um, attempting an ED, I kind of moved over to um, taking a lot of um, typed up notes and then I reverted because, um, and I think some of the research that I read suggests that for a lot of people, so I mean, it depends on, you know, if you're a touch typist, that's different. 
but um, that I remember what I've written uh, more readily, um, you know, than what no, I've I mean, typed. I, I, I can, I, I mean, I've done some, I've published some research on handwriting and, and as, you know, as Ali says, if you handwrite, you tend to remember things better, you tend to understand them better. Um, and I hope that that, yeah, you know, doesn't disappear. No, I, I get that, but I do think it will disappear. Um, <laughs> I, I do, but I do get it. Um, but I just wonder whether, with with AI and with the way things are going, whether so. So, for example, the and and I agree with this. By the way, at the moment, the sort of you know, imagine like the phones in class debate, right? where we're saying, you know, not just phones, but like electronic devices, whatever, mm. smartwatches, phones, you know, you list them, right? That they are a distractive tool, you know, they're a distraction in class and they're not, you know, and I get all that. And it's completely, I agree with all that research. I think that's spot on. But in 20 to 30 years time, I wonder whether that might have completely reversed. I wonder whether there will be a point where actually we go, this technology is too connected. Maybe it will be in visors. On it will be actually in people's eyes. There'll be chips in people's eyes. There'll be chips in people's arms, where they can press a button in their arm, and it will activate AI and it will tell them answers to stuff. So it won't be a question of banning things. It will almost become part of someone, like a human cyborg. This is amazing. I love this stuff. Um, but like, I do genuinely like, okay, that's a bit far fetched, but the point I'm trying to make is I do wonder whether there will be a tipping point where we go, this technology is, is physically and, and met and like physiologically attached to people. So therefore it's part of life. Like, will that be the 30 years, 50 years nostalgia of, oh, we used to go to a computer. We used to go to a phone. We used to move to technology to use it, whereas now it's inbuilt into us. Someone will listen to this podcast in 50 years and tell us. <laughs> <laughs> but the so point think, actually, Yeah, go on. No, I, th I think this is interesting, isn't it? Because um, there are some things that um, uh, the, the cognitive scientist of, of historian Sam Weinberg um, is is really interested in you know he's written he's actually written a book you know why study history when it's all on your phone um, yeah uh, but it turns out that um, you do still need to um, study history he's got a book that's yeah. just about to come out with Mike Caulfield that I've I've ordered a copy of and I'm looking forward to reading called Verified yeah. um, and if you've got access to um, huge amounts of information um, then um, and actually a very old fashioned um, aspect of historical study becomes very important you know and so Mike Caulfield has this mnemonic sift and I always forget what most of the letters stand for but the first the S is stop you know because if you come across something online and it makes you feel emotional you need to stop right and the F, you know, F stands for find a better source you know, so you've got to cross-reference, mm. which is something that's that's always been taught in in my entire, you know, career in um, in in, in uh, history education. Um, but it is going to be interesting to see what happens with um, AI, which isn't directly what you asked, because um, you know uh, there's a lot of 
Uh, the fact that the mistakes that it makes, because it doesn't think, the chatbots don't think they're doing interesting things with a large language model in the main at the moment, aren't they? Yeah. Um, all, all the things that are problematic in our society, you know, racism, sexism, whatever, that is all um, baked in, right? So if you've got this thing in your arm and you can ask questions of it, it's going to be pretty important that you you have an education in um, what questions to ask and some um, uh, some kind of knowledge rich, maybe even education that gives you uh, a body of knowledge in which you can compare that, you know, what this thing in your arm is telling you. And a set of understandings about how, you know, if someone makes a scientific claim or makes a historical claim or makes a religious claim, you know, how can I, how can I test that? And to have an education to cope with this thing in your arm, I still think you're going to need a bunch of teenagers in a room and an educated adult to do it. So, you know. I actually think you'll need that. I think what, what I'm more considering is let's say you've got your classroom environment let's say you've got let's say for the sake of purpose 15 20 um, mm. students in there is more the idea that the the ai which is chipped into you will detect whether through your brain waves or through what they're here what the ai is hearing in the room mm. will detect what's being talked about and through a visor or through some something in your eye will will tell you what what maybe not what the answers are because that that yeah that i think that's too simple will almost be able to sort of feed information in in the moment without you prompting um without you doing a prompt it already know what information it is that you need that's yeah i mean the technology thing. is going to develop in that way i think i think Yes, it, you know, it won't be a chatbot forever, will it? No, it's not. It's going to develop massively. Um, mm. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's going to be, I, I think it's going to be really interesting in even 10 years to see what people say. Oh, I'm nostalgic about that. Um, mm. Obviously, lockdowns will be one. But, mm. you know, but definitely the, from a teaching and learning standpoint, I think there'll be some surprising things that maybe now, we just haven't thought of that will will people will say oh that was that was they were good times um maybe not good times maybe just it's interesting you mentioned lockdown though (laughs) again i don't know what simon's um view on this would be but i think um you know there are the consequences of the pandemic educationally have not worked themselves out no i agree with that no you know and i think this is such a difficult time yeah um, I mean, obviously for everybody, but in education, it it was an interruption to everything we knew, and Definitely. everything that we were used to to doing, and and you know, I think the absence rates suggest that schools yeah. haven't yet got back to um, where they were. So, although no. I'm wanting the teenagers to be in the room, some of them aren't. Yes. you know, and I am oh, and I'm worried about this theme with with youngsters, you know, as in you know, so nursery children um early, early years years what you know key stage one key stage younger key stage two i think they've been really mm. hit with socialization yeah um you know we just find 
you know, even even having lunches is still you know yeah. getting children to sit down and eat lunch is is, is a challenge sometimes. well there's increased anxiety isn't there about yeah it's yes. interacting in general yeah you know there's definitely yeah. this because because once you stop doing something for a period of time it becomes this mountain to climb to do it that's like mm-hmm. human nature isn't it you know mm-hmm. or if you've never done something and then suddenly you can't do it for a period of time you almost mm-hmm. say human nature said was well, going to take a bigger effort isn't it to, to overcome that thing and to then do it Mm. Um, and it's going to become even more an- anxiety-inducing. And yeah, I think I don't. Again, I don't know what the answer to that is. There'll be some who would say, "Well, we need to improve resilience. We need to we need to just sort of do it to then overcome it." And there'll be others who would say, "This is now a reality of what it is. Things have changed. Therefore, we or the education system needs to adapt and needs to change for." those people who are having that experience that that's you know that they're the sort of so i tend to agree with the the adapt but i think there are lots of things that need to happen outside the school sector Mm. you know to make it better to be a child these days um you know and um yeah yeah without going too far down the political dusty and i just think we've got into a situation where um there are lots of uh things that were existed in the 80s um, like leisure centres and youth clubs and, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, yeah. set places where um, kids that, could yeah, go. My, question, and... my, my, my challenge to that, Ali, would be if, mm. if we were to build right now a youth centre in every town or reopen a youth centre in every town as they were in the 80s or 90s and even 2000s, because I I went to one as a kid, you know, Sunday night youth club and it was 40 it was it was stupid like sports and whatever right for like an hour or two Mm. if we were to do that right now do you think kids would go to them I don't know um I do think that they're all being in their own homes yeah (laughs) you know I yeah I I think I think they I don't think they'd want to go to them I don't I by the way, this is a generalization. Um, by the way, I mean, I'm sure there would be some who would want to, but I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting one. Youth clubs. Well, maybe anyone else has an opinion. Tweet us if you have an opinion on this. If we if we open youth clubs around in every town in this country next week, and you know, it's the same as it was in the 80s, 90s. Similar activities, you know, sports, games, whatever. Would kids? want to go to them would they attend them would they actually engage with that or have has society changed so therefore the things that they would want have now changed Mm. anyway we've run out of time this has got deeply (laughs) philosophical um but very enjoyable so um ali and simon thank you ever so much for coming on it's it's been a real pleasure so um this will be available as a podcast by the way um uh, soon after i don't know exactly when but it'll be on the on the teachers talk radio website you can listen back to it um it'll be on mm-hmm. spotify apple all those other ones um i'll i'll send the link to you ali and simon anyway but if anyone else listening now thinks oh you know what i, w- I wouldn't mind checking back in to the bits i've missed 
then it will be available as a podcast. One final shout out to our sponsors on the show tonight, John Cat Educational, johncatbookshop.com. Uh, for all your professional development needs, go over there. You get 20% off. Just use the code. Jason. Read a book. Why not? Read yes, a book. Smash a kid. <laughs> no, definitely. Up Simon's wife. She's so excited. <laughs> Mrs. H, um, they so Thank you very yeah. much, Tom. And nice Brilliant, to meet you, Alex. Simon. Thank you very much, Tom. <laughs> and a pleasure to meet you, Ali. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Good night, everybody. And uh, yeah, nine o'clock, by the way, in 10 minutes' time, Ray has her first ever show on Teachers Talk Radio. Please listen to her. It's ttradio.org. Click listen live. She's on in 10 minutes' time. Good night, everybody. And have a good evening. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.